Father, we come and readily acknowledge our need for you. As the congregation was just singing, we need you every hour. Regardless of the time, regardless of the place, the season, the circumstance, we need you. Oh, how we need you. And we need you right now. In this special hour of humbling ourselves before the authority of your word, before the word of Christ, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would make your word accessible to us, built in us attitude, Lord, of dependence on you. If there's anyone here who thinks that he can do Christian life without abiding in you through prayer, I pray that you would convict them, bring them to their knees, help us to see the need and the privilege to pray individually and to pray corporately for one another. We thank you that you are powerful to answer. And as we approach your throne, we can trust your promises. We can rehearse them to ourselves and have and be full of confidence that you will answer according to your will. Help us, I pray. As we look at this special passage here this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This morning we will be studying the end of this letter, last few verses, verses 13 through 18, James chapter 5, 13 through 18. The most influential sermon ever preached on American soil was probably preached by Jonathan Edwards. It was preached on July 8th, 1741. The sermon set off the first great awakening in this country. Many of you probably know what sermon I'm referring to, the sermon entitled by Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards himself was not a great communicator. He wasn't an accomplished preacher by any means. Historians tell us that when he preached, he would often take his manuscript and hold it so close to his eyes that the congregation couldn't even see the expressions on his face. During the sermon that he preached, he went on and on and on until the people in the crowded church were moved beyond control. It was reported that as he preached, one man sprung up, rushed down the aisle and cried, Mr. Edwards, have mercy. I'll read you an excerpt, a very famous excerpt from this sermon. It went something like this. He preached, your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And to tend downwards with a great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than the spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. 
as he preached with such weight and such conviction, some thought that the day of the Lord had dawned on them on that very, in that very moment. As a result of great conviction, many came to the Lord and confessed and professed their sins. However, there's something about this sermon that people, not many people know. There was a group of believers in the vicinity of Enfield, Massachusetts, where he preached the sermon, who had become just aware and burdened of the, of the spiritual condition in their community. They were afraid, actually, because of how wicked people were that God somehow passed over their city and was no longer actively working in their midst. So, because of their deep concern for their community, they met together a previous night in order to spend time with the Lord in praying for their congregation and praying for their city. They wanted to pray for an evening. They ended up praying for that evening and pray pray through the night in just agonizing prayer. And the rest, as we know, is history. And so as we reflect on this, is it any wonder that there was such a display of power of God that Sunday as Jonathan Edwards took his manuscript and began to preach? You know, a praying church is a powerful force in any generation, not just in 1700s. Today, as the title of the sermon indicates, we are talking about prayer, and we're talking about individual prayer and corporate prayer. And I just want to begin with a disclaimer that um, I did not pick this topic because I am an expert in the practice of prayer. Right? It is a constant struggle for me, and I don't want you convey in any way that, that I personally have arrived when it comes to prayer. But I want to encourage, and I want you all to be encouraged by this text today. And so regardless of where you're at, uh, this, I pray, would not be a sermon to guilt trip us into praying, but to just allow us to see the power and the glories of God and him anxiously waiting to hear his children come to him to submit to his will, to pray for a full of faith in anticipation of what he can accomplish through us. You know, we've recently studied uh, Matthew chapter six, right? As we went through the Sermon on the Mount and we talked about the importance of prayer. And we said that prayer is an expression of your dependence on God in all spheres of life. That's what prayer is. Prayer is dependence. You're gonna define it, that's why you should define it. It is dependence and all Christians are dependent and since all Christians are dependent, then all Christians should be praying. Prayerless Christians is an anomaly. We don't pray to show off our piety or our holiness. We pray because we're in such great need of God's intervention. We need his mercy. We need his care. We need his wisdom as we read and so on. As you look down on on James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18, the word prayer or pray are used here uh, in every verse or even multiple times. The point 
of this emphasis, right, is to highlight the need to pray with faith and the power that comes from praying. And what James is arguing for is that genuine faith is demonstrated by prayerful dependence upon God in every circumstance. Genuine faith is demonstrated by prayerful dependence upon God in every circumstance. Let's read and let's see what James has to tell us and how he would instruct us and our congregation to really take these truths and apply it in our own lives. James chapter 5, beginning with verse 13, James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So the emphasis on this in this section is on prayer, and why we should pray is because of our Lord. God is powerful to answer these prayers. That's why prayer is powerful and it's effective. Because of the one to whom we pray and who looks forward to hearing us pray to him. It's all about God. It's all about his power. But James wants you to see because prayer is tied to God who is powerful. Therefore, prayer is powerful and effective. And since prayer is powerful and effective, the obvious conclusion and exhortation and the command is we should be motivated to pray individually and corporately. Since this is true of God, and since this is the method that he prescribed for us to approach his throne, then we ought to be motivated and inspired to go and pray in faith, both individually and corporately together. So our outline here is is rather simple. First point is pray privately. Pray privately. Live with a God-dependent focus. That's the first thing. Live with a God-dependent focus. Apart from others, just you and the Lord. That's number one. Number two, pray corporately. Share your God-dependent focus with others. And number three, as we look at the final example here of Elijah, James says, pray inspired, pray inspired, motivate your God dependent focus. So let's look at them individually. Number one, pray privately. James here, he begins this section on prayer with just two simple questions, really short question and even shorter answer, which is amazing. And these two questions, they encompass really all of our life's experiences, troubles or blessings. James says, are you in trouble? Then pray. Are you cheerful? Then sing. Then praise. Prayer and praise. So in all of life's circumstances, in every situation, we must learn to live by 
prayer, we must learn to live with a God-dependent focus. And here he gives two individual responses, right? First, he says, respond to your trouble, Christian, with prayer. Respond to your trouble with prayer. He says, is anyone suffering? Is anyone suffering? This can refer to literally any trouble in life, any difficulty that you might face. If you look above here in James chapter 5, verse 10, James attributed the same term to the prophets. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, take for example, right, the prophets who suffered in the name of the Lord. They were mistreated, persecuted. They were run out of town. They suffered physically, obviously suffered emotionally. Some were even killed for the Lord And James here, remember, he's writing, as as Pastor Jan read in chapter 1, he's writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered because of the gospel, so they're suffering the same fate as these prophets. And so they're encountering just real difficult trials. So this suffering can be any pressure, as I said, physical, spiritual, financial, relational, and so as you, as you hear this command here, uh, you may be stuck in the same predicament here this morning. You're suffering. You're suffering physically. You're suffering spiritually. Whatever season that you're going through of, of, a, of a trial, of some kind of trouble, James gives you an answer. What is his solution? He says, pray. Like in our English translation says, then he must pray. But in the original, it's one word, pray. You're you're suffering, pray, pray. I mean, for some, right, this, this seems like a very simplistic answer. Like, no, tell me something else. It might sound like James here is just ignoring the issue altogether, right? You want some kind of method. You want some kind of procedure, how do you get through this? To others, this, this answer here, it makes sense theoretically. God does call us to pray unceasingly. But how many, for how many of you is, is prayer like an automatic response in trouble and in suffering? Naturally, I think our go-to move is if, I don't know, If I was writing this, is any one of you suffering? Complain, (laughs) grumble, ask why. Go to the Lord and ask why. Not not humbly going down on our knees and, and expressing our dependence. Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you to get me through this trouble. James here, he wants us to respond in prayer as a first resort, not last. Not after you have tried everything to get you out of trouble. No, we, he says, we don't have the wisdom necessary to properly handle the suffering on our own. So therefore we need to go and we need to first ask and we need to first admit that we're so dependent on God to even begin to understand this trouble, to know how to handle, how to respond to this trouble. That's why when you pray, you really admit and you go and say, Lord, unless you give wisdom and power 
and work out your purposes through this trial, all of my efforts will fail. He doesn't tell us what we should be praying for in this verse. He just tells pray, pray. But we know from the rest of the letter what we should be praying for. We read in verse one or in chapter one, verse five, he says, pray for wisdom. What should we pray for? Pray for wisdom. Pray, John 11, for instance, pray that God would use whatever suffering you're going through for his glory. John 11, 4. Don't be too quick, Christian, to pray for the removal of a particular trouble, of a season, the suffering season that you're in. Listen, if God, in his sovereign wisdom, And in his providence, saw it necessary to get you into this season. He's intending to teach you something valuable about himself. And therefore, as earlier on in in chapter 5, James says, pray for patience. Pray for endurance. Don't be praying quickly to just, you know, get rid of it. Pray for God to work out his purposes. Are you in trouble, Christian? Pray. Pray. But there's another response. He says, in blessings, right? Respond to your blessing with praise. He's very short also with his answer. Are you cheerful? Are you cheerful here this morning? You happy? Then start praising the Lord. Cheerfulness here does not refer to just outside circumstances, but really this cheerfulness and happiness of heart. It is this joyful inward attitude. Are you happy? Many of you are happy here this morning just to be here to praise the Lord. You happy about what the Lord is doing in your life? Are you happy? Then praise the Lord. Literally, it says sing psalms. Sing psalms. Right? We, we sing the song, praise God from what? Whom all blessings flow. That's what James is talking about. When you feel joyful, when you're in this blessed season, you know, someone comes up to you and says, hey, how you doing? Man, I'm just blessed. I'm just blessed. Praise the Lord. You know, from whom these blessings flow? From God. That's why we're called to praise him. Psalm 103, 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. It might be that James here has a certain sequence in mind. You know, we, we often pray when we're down. We ask others to pray. We text one another. We slack each other. We call. We reach out and we say, man, I'm, I'm going through this. Pray for me. And so the church prays. And you pray, and your family prays, and everybody's involved in praying. But, you know, we tend to forget when the Lord delivers us, how often do we forget to praise him? When we enter this season of of blessing, of joy, unspeakable joy sometimes, we're so quick to forget about the heartaches that we lived through yesterday. James says, when you literally come out of this tunnel, remember to praise the Lord. Live, continue to live with this God-dependent focus. Focus on the Lord and praise him. The joy, listen, Christian, the joy that fills your heart is from him. It's not a product of your own making. He fills your heart with joy. 
sing songs of praise. Do you like to sing? You like to sing? Sing to the Lord. You, you really should. If some of you don't like to sing, you really should um, love to sing. Learn how to love to sing songs of praises. You know, sometimes um, you don't really know how to express right, your love and just appreciation for God. And sometimes you, you just turn on good gospel-saturated songs. Right? There are a, a number of artists that, that just literally, I mean, the Lord blessed them in the way to, to even put your own expressions on paper and you're like, that's exactly how I feel. I wouldn't never express my attitude and gratefulness this way, but I could sing with this guy. I can sing with this group. Why? Because that's exactly how I'm feeling. These songs, that's why scripture is full of commands. Sing to one another. Sing scripture to one another and express your gratitude. You're joyful. I think it should reflect in the way we sing as a congregation. If you're joyful, sing to the Lord. You know, sometimes also playing good worship songs, just saturated with the truth, with the gospel truth, can help to stir appreciation and praise, even when you don't feel like it. So church, James' first encouragement for us this morning is to pray privately is to express our God-dependent focus whether we're in trouble or we're full of joy. He says, pray and praise. Don't think of prayer as just this simplistic solution. Think of prayer as the most effective way to draw to God in dependence, to either plead for mercy or to praise him for his care. So that's verse 13, but while verse 13 here focuses on private prayer, primarily James, he encourages us to share our lives with each other in the body of Christ. We are members of one another, aren't we? We belong to one another. We are called to love one another. And since we do, part of our loving one another from last week is praying for one another. God put us into one body so that we may care for one another. Therefore, we come to our second point, pray corporately, share your God-dependent focus. Let's look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick? Now, a couple of responses here in verses 14 through 16 that James highlights. So respond, he says, for individual, right? Respond to your troubles by praying, respond to your blessings by praising. Here he says, respond to a serious illness by calling on your pastor to intercede for you in prayer, or pastors, plural. Is anyone among you sick, verse 14? Then he must call for the elders of the church. Now, I don't know about you, but verses 14 through 15 through 16, they're some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to interpret and to apply. There are really two main questions that every interpreter, every preacher that that approaches and really every congregant, as you approach this passage, you need to answer. Number one, is James talking about physical sickness here or spiritual sickness? Physical or spiritual? And number two, what in the world is up with the oil 
What's the deal with this oil and what are we supposed to do? So I'm sure many of you have wrestled with, I have wrestled with, um, and sometimes to the point of taking my concordance out and see, is there another you know, command where it says pray for one another that I can maybe go to that passage instead, instead of dealing with this one. This one is really hard. But nonetheless, let's look at these verses and see what the Lord can instruct us in. Now, a number of commentators, they take these verses uh, and they say that they do not address physical healing at all. So when James says, uh, is anyone among you sick? He is not talking about physical healing. Okay? So on the contrary, they say, James' exhortation for his readers is to persevere and to be patient in the middle of struggle, right? And that struggle is their personal weakness. And therefore, they need healing from that rather than physical healing. They say this, this um, word, this term sick here should be translated as weak. And the use of oil here uh, points to a practice of honoring someone or refreshing someone with words of encouragement. So the call here is for someone who is spiritually weak, that they can't even pray for themselves, is to call on the elders so that they would come and that they would pray and that they would refresh them and that they would pray over them so that the Lord might restore them to spiritual strength and vitality. Now, this interpretation, obviously, from other passages, and, and even this, to some extent, may, may seem reasonable here, especially given the earlier context. But almost all commentators and Bible translators take this passage to mean physical healing. It is really the most uh, kind of straightforward interpretation of this passage. And there are really a couple of reasons that I think would make, uh, would persuade us that we need to take this passage to mean physical healing. Is any one of you physically struggling? Then pray and ask for pastors to pray. Number one, Douglas Moo here, he makes the observation that um, though sick, is anyone among you sick, this term sick here, can denote spiritual weakness, but every time sick is used to refer to spiritual weakness, it is qualified by something else, by another term or in the context. For instance, in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, Paul says that you are sick or weak in faith. So there's the qualifier. Or in 1 Corinthians 8, 7, you are weak in conscience. You're weak in conscience. So James here most likely would have done the same thing as anyone among you weak in faith or weak in conscience, weak spiritually would have probably qualified if he had spiritual sickness in mind. Second, remember that James is one of the earliest epistles written, okay, in the New Testament. And if you compare his vocabulary to the three synoptic gospels that were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all came earlier, the term sick always refers to physical sickness. You will find this term sick in Matthew, for instance. We look at it all the time. Jesus healed the sick. He healed those who were physically ill, physically unable to perform things, to perform bodily functions. And so just based on these two, I think it would be safe for us to conclude that he is referring to physical 
illness. So let's just start putting these pieces together here in verses 14 and 15. If anyone among you sick, he says, call for elders to pray over you. How sick? How sick is the question? At least that's the question that I have. (laughs) How sick? Well, I think seriously sick so that you can't fellowship with believers, right? You're probably bedridden so that you cannot come and participate in a corporate worship and corporate prayer. You may not even be able to pray in private because of how just physically ill and sick you are and how much pain you may endure. I don't think James here is referring to just a typical cold, right? We're talking about spiritual or serious rather matters, perhaps life-threatening sickness or sicknesses, physical sicknesses that overwhelm you spiritually, where you need your pastors to come alongside of you and to pray for you that whatever it is that you're dealing with physically may not affect you spiritually. We're talking about a very serious matter here. And so Paul, like in Galatians chapter six, he says, we are to carry one another burdens. And so one way pastors, they carry the burden of the congregation is that they go and that they would pray for those who are sick. You or someone from your family is called, right, to go and call the pastors that they may know what you're dealing with. And this is kind of a very practical application here. Don't expect the pastors to know everything. They're not omniscient. We're not the Lord. You have to communicate these things with us, with your pastor. He says he must call. And so the elders of the church, remember, they're not faith healers who come in, lay their hands on you, and you will be healed. That's not what they're called to do, but they are called to be able to teach And they're called to remain in prayer. Here James calls them to pray. In Acts chapter 6, same thing, right? Apostle says, we need to be about studying the word, handling the word, and praying. And so here it is, James emphasizes that. The pastors need to be praying. Now James tells the elders to pray over the sick person and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, there are several interpretations to the meaning of, of the use of this oil. Some refer to the ancient practice of applying oil for medicinal use, like the Good Samaritan did, remember? He applied oil to the wounds and he bandaged those wounds. Uh, They conclude that pastors would not only offer prayers for the sick, but also can, in some cases, offer medicine, bring some supplies with them in order to soothe the wounds of the hurting. And, and given the context, no doubt, many of the Christian slaves at this time were suffering from various abuses at the hands of their masters. So you can see a potential situation where, as James writing earlier to all the guys who are scattered all over the place, says when pastors come, they may also administer some medicine. It would be normal for a pastor to come and to pray and to physically bandage his wounds, so to speak. So what James is saying, ultimately, is pray and use the medical means that are available to you. That's one way of looking at this passage. Now, most all agree 
about the physical act of anointing, actually going and, and, and anointing someone with oil, but that physical act carries a spiritual significance. There's something spiritually related to this physical act. Mu writes, since the symbolism of anointing is usually associated with the setting apart or consecrating of someone or something to God, we are probably to understand this as symbolism intended in the action. As the elders pray for the sick person, they also set that person apart for God's special attention. Oil often is uh, symbolized in the, the Holy Spirit who would be this agent of healing. So it would be a ceremony pastors would perform as they pray over the sick. Now here's the thing about this passage here or, or this anointing. This is the only time anointing of such a kind is mentioned in all of New Testament. We don't see it anywhere else in the latter writings of the New Testament. Paul never mentions these things. We know here from this very passage that power does not lie in anointing. Power does not even lie in faith. It, is, it lies in the prayer of faith, he says, that will restore the sick, but it is the Lord who raises it is the Lord who raises. So if you dig deeper, then you will see that the prayer offered to our sovereign God, our powerful God, that restores the person back to health. So the question is, what is this prayer of faith? This term here, prayer of faith, not praying in faith, but prayer of faith, is mentioned only time here in in this passage and nowhere else in the New Testament, what does it mean? It seems like James here is actually guaranteeing that all who pray in faith will be restored from their physical sickness here. And the prayer, verse 15, offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And that's why today you will find some denominations, they preach that God always heals the sick. If you're not healed, then you must not have faith. But this teaching not only betrays the scripture, it just betrays our life experiences, doesn't it? It's interesting in Philippians chapter 2, Paul did not heal Epaphroditus, who would have helped him tremendously in his mission. How do we explain that? In 1 Timothy 5.23, he tells Timothy to take some wine for his stomach pains, why not just heal the guy and do away with the temptation of drinking wine and getting carried away? Seems to be a more obvious solution. How many of you had loved ones who had passed away from serious illnesses? You prayed for them. You asked pastors to pray for them. You asked other pastors from other churches to pray for them. And they were not restored. How do you explain that? The prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. You know, it's not a special category of prayer. It is a reminder for us that prayer and faith, they must work together as we read in James chapter 1, 6, and 8. But he must ask without doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. When that man prays without any faith, he says, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Are you praying for healing? You believe, right, as you pray for healing, you believe that God is able to heal the sick. If you don't believe that God is able to heal the sick, if he's not powerful enough to literally raise somebody from the dead, what's the point of our prayer? What's the point of your prayer? Do you believe in who God is, that he is able? Then pray. Then pray. It is not the the prayer of faith that heals. Rather, James says, the Lord will raise him up. The Lord is sovereign, isn't he? But the thing is, we, we, don't, we don't know his sovereign will. It's only in retrospect that we look back and we can reflect and say, you know, I prayed that God's will would be done in the case of my family member or my church member or someone else, but God saw it differently. He determined that, that a different outcome is necessary than just his physical restoration. And we got to reconcile that with this passage. A prayer for healing then must be qualified by a recognition that God's will in this matter is supreme. A prayer for healing offered with the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing, but only when God's will is to heal that individual. A prayer of faith, also look at that, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. A prayer of faith will also be a prayer of confession and repentance. That is why James says, if you have sinned, your sins will be forgiven. You know, not all sickness is a result of one's sin, but all sickness is a result of sin. You get it? You're not sick because of your personal sin, at all times. You may be. That's what James is saying here. You may be. But regardless, all sickness is a result of sin because it entered as a result of the fall. And so James says there may be a time, friends, when you have to reflect and when you are sick. And usually that's what Christians do. Lord, what is, why, what is the will, right? What is the purpose of you sending me this sickness. You begin to examine your life. And James says, you examine your life. Don't think that, oh, it's just, you know, I met with a friend who had some virus and he passed it on to me. God is sovereign over viruses. Absolutely he is. But at times James says that your sickness, my sickness is a result of personal sin. And we need to admit that. It's important for any person in this position to search his or her heart to see if there's any unrepentant sin that needs to be confessed. Because perhaps sickness is a result and the Lord is bringing it so that he could reveal something. He can reveal something. Do you remember this passage in 1 Corinthians 11? 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to a church, Corinthians, who were so proud and full of themselves. And he says, listen, because you participate of the Lord's table, of the supper of communion in a proud manner. That's why some of you are weak and sick 
and the number are dead. 1 Corinthians 11.30. God takes your life sometimes. If you mistreat him, if you operate without any reverence before God, if you disobey, he does that. But he says when he does that, he does that to prevent so that you will be, so that you will not be judged with the world. In other words, you are not eternally condemned, but you suffer the consequences of sin. This may be one of those times And James says, listen, as you examine your heart, you ask for pastors to come and to pray with you. Then you think first and foremost about your heart. Examine it. And if you have sinned, man, this is the promise. Your sins will be forgiven. Your sins will be forgiven. God will restore you. Why? Because God is gracious. He's willing And he's ready, stands ready for you to come and to confess your sin. So pray personally, but also when dealing with a serious illness, respond, James says, by calling on pastors to pray for you. Express your need and burden. You know, sometimes we, when we say, share some things about one another and, and, hey, pray for me, you know, pray for me. I'm going through this and that, pray for me. And sometimes we, we sort of get this pious, you know, stance and, and feeling like, oh, I asked someone to pray for me. You know, I'm spiritual, I'm pious, I'm holy. Like they know that I'm praying and so I'm just asking somebody else to pray for me. But really when you admit that you need prayer, you admit that, man, you're dependent. You admit, right, that you don't have it all together. <laughs> when I come to you and I say, friend, Can you pray for me? I need you, friend, to bring me and my need and my condition before the Lord who hears, who stands ready to bless, but I am so dependent on him. And this really, this full section is just a uh, expression of our utter dependence on God. Pray when you're happy, Pray when you're in trouble. Pray when you are seriously ill. And when your pastors come and pray for you, believing that God has power and willingness to heal. And if God chooses to heal you, we will bless his name because it is not our oil, it is not our prayer, or the strength of our faith that healed you. It is the Lord, the Lord who heals So respond to illnesses by calling on your pastor, but also respond to a struggle with sin by calling on fellow saints. Respond to a struggle with sin by calling on fellow saints. He continues in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Therefore here, since prayer for healing accomplishes much, and since God is willing to forgive our sins, the entire community is encouraged to confess their sins to one another and pray to one another. So confess and pray. Get this, friends, because we have direct access to God in Christ, we don't have to go to the booth to confess our sins like some claim that we do. We have a great high priest in heaven who stands ready to forgive. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet, this does not mean that we're not accountable to one another. We belong to one another. That means we are accountable to one another. We sin against each other all the time. And when we sin against each other, we must confess our sins to one another. But be careful. Confession here, it doesn't mean that, you know, you get to air your dirty laundry to everybody else or you know something of another person and you, you get to tell everybody else about that particular person. A, a good rule of thumb is confession needs to be as public as sin. Confession needs to be as public as sin. If you sinned against a brother or sister, you need to go to that brother and sister and confess your sin and pray. If you sinned, a public sin that the entire church needs to hear about and hear your confession, then you need to find appropriate time to publicly confess your sin. And Paul says, or James says here, as you confess, then pray. Pray. Listen, it's almost like he's saying, don't condemn one another. Don't condemn one another, friends. Pray for one another. A healthy church is a praying church where members cover each other with prayer. They intercede before the Lord for one another. Pray when, when there's physical sickness. Pray when there's spiritual sickness. Like Jonathan Edwards' church pre prayed for. Spiritually sick. Pray that God would continue to accomplish his purposes in the local body, that sin might be confessed and, and forgiveness might be granted. Notice that everybody is doing this. Pray to one another. There's no exceptions. Pastors, we are confessing our sins to one another and to you as well when sin occurs. To one another. Each member is confessing his or her sin. No exclusion. There are no hierarchy. You go to the Pope, or you go to this person, or you go to the pastor, but pastor are exempt from this. No, everybody needs to confess sin and pray for one another. We all acknowledge that we are struggling with sin and our need for one another in this battle. I need you, friends, and you need me. We need to ask for prayers, and we need to pray, because God stands ready God stands ready to hear the prayer of a church that's humbled before him and is, sees its constant need, confession and repentance. We pray because that's how we share our God-dependent focus with one another. Every verse here is about prayer, but here's the thing. Some might be asking, why, why pray? Why pray personally? Why pray corporately? And and so here James gives us the, the final exhortation here. Let's look at it briefly. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then Elijah. Let me tell you something about Elijah. So two more responses here. He wants us to pray inspired. He wants us to be motivated in our God-dependent focus. Respond in prayer because it is powerfully effective. The prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. James says here, Remember, remember one thing. Whether you need physical healing or spiritual healing, prayer is very powerful. But he says, prayer of a righteous man. Prayer of a righteous man. That's a daunting standard. And so we come to this like, well, that's why I don't pray. <laughs> that's exactly why I don't pray. 
Because when I consider myself, I am not so righteous. But friends, we need to remember that we have been justified by faith. We have been accepted in the beloved. When you run to the cross, confess your sins to God and receive forgiveness of God through faith in the blood of Jesus, you are declared righteous before him. It is through Christ that we approach God in prayer. That's what he says in Hebrews chapter four. We have a great high priest who opened the door for us. Run, you are righteous. And yet this righteousness also refers to our walk. It's not just positional, but it is our walk, our practice in righteousness. But what does it mean? It means that we walk righteously before the Lord, confessing known sin and pursuing holiness. If we pray for somebody to be healed and yet we are aware of just great sin in our very own lives without confessing it, it, it is powerless. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And that's a promise. It's the person that walk in light who is righteous, the one who turns away from sin. And James says when that person prayers, prays, his prayer is effective. What happens when you don't get answers to your prayer, friends? Maybe we're not aware of, of any sin in our lives, and yet the Lord doesn't answer according to our prayer. What's going on? You know, sometimes God delays for reasons only known to him. Sometimes he delays in order to show how dependent we are on him and to keep us there on our knees, to keep praying, to keep seeking, to keep asking. Some of us have been praying for our loved ones, maybe sisters or brothers or friends, for a very long time, or sons or daughters, for a very long time, and they haven't yet come to faith in Christ. Why is he delaying the answer here, I think, for us and the encouragement is keep praying. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't conclude that prayer doesn't work, quote unquote. God has chosen to accomplish his will through the prayers of his people. So pray big and expect God to accomplish his purposes. So respond in prayer because Prayer is powerful because of our God who is powerful. But also, finally, James here, he says, let me give you an illustration that will just inspire your lack of faith, will just motivate you to continue to pray. And he gives an illustration of a man, of a man. I don't know if, um, I don't know about you, but when you read anything about great men of God, uh, we kind of put them in the category of their own, like Elijah and Moses and others, man, they belong here and we're like right here. And they're, they're, they don't serve as an inspiration, they're almost like intimidation. And it's almost like, why is James bringing up Elijah? No, show me someone else. But James says, no, 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 let me tell you something about Elijah. He was a man like you. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Man, this is encouraging. This is really encouraging to me. He was like me. He was an ordinary man. He had a nature like mine. In 1 Kings 17, 1, Elijah said to King Arab, as the Lord lives, the Lord of Israel lives, surely there shall be neither dew 
nor rain these days except by my word. James here, he gives a peek kind of behind the scenes of what happened. Before Elijah confronted Ahab, he prayed to God. And then Elijah declared that it would not rain. James here does not credit the fact that Elijah was an anointed prophet. He was just this special guy. He had a special anointing. He was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed. You know how we know he was a man with a nature like ours? Because he felt fear just like we feel fear. He felt intimidation just like we feel intimidated. He felt doubt. At times he doubted God's provision. And the great man of God, when I study him, I, I, I see a lot of similarities between me and him. And yet he prayed to a powerful God. And this God could open and shut the sky so that it did not rain. Now, sometimes when we read this without the Old Testament background, we're like, whoa, so you can pray for anything and the Lord answers? That's great. Let's pray big. That's where people get in trouble sometimes. But remember, remember this. Old Testament, it's stated repeatedly that if Israel became an idolatrous nation, God would withhold rain from the land. Said that in multiple passages, in Deuteronomy, at least three times, in 2 Chronicles. So it's reasonable to assume that Elijah, the prophet of God, he knows the Bible. He knows, he knows the promises of God. And he sees his nation in sin, in great sin. He reads the promises and he goes and prays to God, Lord, this is what you said would do if a nation becomes idolatrous. Right now, the nation is idolatrous. And I pray, shut the sky so that we get the point. And that's what Elijah did. Elijah knew the living God. He knew the power of God. And therefore, we, he prayed in accordance with the scriptures. And look what it says. He prayed earnestly, literally prayed with prayer. It's a repetition of the same word. He also understood his own weakness and he recognized his own inadequacy. And that is why he prayed. This is one of the reasons why we so often do not pray earnestly is that we do not properly see our weakness and inadequacy. We think that we somehow have the power to do and to live our lives without him. Church, these things are written for our edification and to teach us to rely on the Lord like other great men of faith did. Why were there great men? Because they had a great God. That's why. Why should we be praying? Because God longs and he loves to hear his children come to him and bless his children. That's why we pray for one another. Do you believe that prayer is powerfully effective? Then pray. Pray privately when you're in trouble and when you're experiencing God's blessing. Pray corporately for one another. When you're seriously ill, call on us to intercede for you in prayer. If you're struggling with sin, friend, confess it to another and pray with one another. Are you struggling to maintain fervency in prayer? Oh, be reminded of the powerful God who hears and who answers prayer of all the saints who come to him in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you. Inspire us 
to look to you, to believe your promises, to pray and to wait anxiously for you, to build us up, to restore us both physically and spiritually, Lord. May we never resort to prayer as the last thing we do, but the first. And may we set an example for one another in the way we approach your throne and express our dependence on you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.